0: McLean's pop culture podcast, Thrill, for the week of April 10th. This week's show, Islands in the Stream. The landscape is shifting for streaming music, and with a tidal wave approaching, we speak to an expert who can explain what's going on for audio. Check yourself before you tech yourself. We all text and tweet on our phones and laptops, so why is it so hard to show that in movies and on TV? We talk to a director whose film inspired an episode of the show Modern Family, shot entirely on Apple products. And Raving Mad Men. We'll discuss the cultural impact of AMC's dapper-dressed, hard-drinking series, which will air its final episodes over the next six weeks. Will Don Draper die? Does it really matter? I'm Adrian.
1: I'm Emma. And I'm Julia.
0: And this is The Thrill. They came, they stood, they looked awkward. Some of music's most famous artists, from Daft Punk to Arcade Fire to Beyoncé, stood stiffly together last week to sign a declaration to the latest thing in music streaming, Tidal. It's part owned by Queen Bey's husband, Jay-Z. It was weird, but it's another sign of the ongoing battle over streaming music, which is jockeying to be the answer to a flailing music industry, with sales down all over the place. Spotify, RDO, Google Play, they're all players in the field alongside Tidal, but are any of them really the future? Josh O'Kane's been writing about music streaming for the Globe and Mail. Most recently, about Title's incursion into the streaming market. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, so, can you start by explaining what's supposed to make Title so special? Yeah, it's it's owned by the artists that we saw on stage uh, a couple of Mondays ago
2: uh, that, you, that you that you named. Uh, they each have an equity stake. They haven't really confirmed exactly how much of a stake they have. There could be some other sort of private uh, owners that are that are there, but they literally have a stake the artists uh, in Title's future success. So that's sort of why it's trying to differentiate itself from the Spotify's and the RDO's and Deezer's of the world that are largely owned entirely by private companies who would then reap their profits from it. And so Tidal's sort of positioning itself as a way to let music fans give back to the artists uh, in exchange for sort of things like exclusive content. Uh, like editorial content, early song debuts, music videos,
0: that sort of thing. But it's also the uh, the quality of the music, right? It's also the, th- the 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 quality of the sound is is part of the selling point, right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, when it, it actually, Tuttle actually first launched uh, a few months ago, as without any connection with Jay Z, he didn't actually put in a bid for it uh, until a few weeks after it launched in North America last November or December. Uh, and its big selling point then was you could only uh, get uh, the expensive twenty dollars a month subscription uh, for high fidelity music. And that was his major selling point that it was supposed to be this this music service for audio files that you know record collectors, you know who are incredibly obsessed with the way their music sounds mm-hmm. would be able to have an option uh, for streaming for them. that was sort of a mainstream, easily accessible platform.
0: Yeah, and so and so the what we've been talking about is this kind of really odd press conference where everyone sort of stood together, and there was this this, this sort of video that came out on YouTube that had them all talking in in really grandiose terms about a revolution. This is going to change everything, and uh, it, it's weird. We'll we'll play a segment right now. Right now, they're writing a story
3: for us. We need to write the story for ourselves. If our hands, can see that
2: it's from us. That's what
0: I was
1: finding so important <laughs> it's it's done this collaboration feels so egoless everybody's having a conversation we really do have an opportunity to change the way we all experience art
0: i mean are they right do you, is this going to really signal an actual like weird revolution started by these extremely wealthy people
2: it's possible but it comes down to what details are going to come out i think in the coming weeks and in, in months I mean, I really there's this uncertainty that really came from the press conference that it sounded, you know, like this amazing, new changing thing for the music industry, but they didn't exactly say how artists are going to to get more money, which in turn is really what they're what they're trying to sell, I think, to the the majority of music fans.
4: yeah, one thing I'm kind of confused about is how is this really benefiting artists? Do you know that?
2: I think, in a way, they're trying to connect with uh, they're trying to connect with the fans directly. And to sort of create this direct linkage, like if you, uh, if you saw earlier this week, Beyonce and Rihanna both dropped new songs uh, on Tidal and exclusively on Tidal as a way to sort of differentiate themselves from other, other platforms to say, this is how we're going to directly connect with you from here on in. Uh, and Jay-Z also actually pulled uh, his seminal album, Reasonable Doubt, from other streaming services as a way to say, you know, Tidal is where, you know, significant artists are going to be going mm-hmm. today.
0: And so it's weird, right? It's It seems like this is great news for artists, which and I think there's a lot of questions about whether or not this really is meaningfully going to be that. But at the same time for like music fans, you know, let's talk about what the impact of this for music fans is. It, rather than actually like democratizing music and having them all available all over the place, uh, we're actually seeing like some of our biggest artists uh, take them away so that you can only listen to them in some places. Like, you know, you're just saying Jay-Z is only, some of his albums are only available now on Tidal. Uh, Taylor Swift uh, is not available on RDO and Spotify. Spotify. She Spotify. actually, her
2: back catalog's on RDO. It's everything but Spotify. She's got a beef with
0: them. Right. So it's this, it's this weird thing that doesn't actually seem very good for music listeners in that uh, it's kind of like these weird fiefdoms of music now.
2: I think it comes down to the The fact that someone really needed to make a stand in order to shake up uh, the sort of the paradigm of how we perceive music streaming today. I think this is sort of Jay Z's stand of saying, okay, that's great that all these private companies are, you know, offering all these different music streaming options, but none of it is really giving back to the artists. They haven't said how they're going to pay artists more because, in the end, every single streaming service is regulated by you know, the contracts all the artists have signed with their labels and their publishers, uh, who are going to get the majority of their income from sales anyway. What it does is it's saying here is a giant stand so that maybe more artists will flock to a single service because right now the the waters are so muddied based on the fact there are so many services out there and they're all almost identical. So it's sort of giving itself this point that's saying this is why Tidal, you know, may have the highest tide.
1: So I have RDO, I've had it for a while and uh I mean, I like it okay. I'm not really that hip to how streaming works for the most part, but I'm a pretty satisfied customer, I guess. And when I saw the conference, as with a lot of people, there was a lot of eye-rolling with these, like, you know, kings and queens of music on top of their mountains, sipping champagne and congratulating themselves for putting this together. And a lot of the reaction that I heard was, um, why would we pay more money for Madonna and Beyonce and Pharrell to have even more bazillions of dollars? That's what the, the message seemed to get across, which I realize is, of course, not true, because mm. they were trying to... Uh, they, the reason why there were so many of those big names was that they would get a lot of media press, and their point is that, like, what about all the other people that mm. you don't know about? Like, they're the ones who are suffering. Like, for example, Aloe Black did a song with Avicii, I think, last year called Wake Me Up, and it got 168 million streams, and he only made $4,000. So that's like, oh, you're like, oh, that doesn't seem fair. But I think I, – so then I downloaded a title, and I tried the the – the hi-fi, I mean, which makes no difference to me because right. only certain people with certain sound systems care about that, and I am not one of those people. So there's no reason for me to pay ten extra dollars. That's a month. lot of people's problems. Right. <laughs> so um so anyway, I was fooling around on on title and it you know, they have playlists curated by um, big artists, they have music journalism on there. That's different. That like Spotify and RDO don't have that. And I was actually fairly impressed considering that I think the the average price, the non hi fi price, is something like ten dollars. RDO is like thirteen dollars, something like that. It's by a few dollars, but you know, it seems like a better deal. But but I, the only reason I downloaded the title at all is because we were going to do this segment, and I don't think I would have cared uh, to look into it because I was so turned off by the the conference. So did you, do you
4: think that's age based though? And maybe, maybe if you're of the demographic who's like a big fan of, I mean, I'm a big fan of Beyonce and Jay Z, but I'm also maybe not as I don't know, swayed by celebrity endorsements, but I think I totally would have been if I was thirteen or fourteen. You know, if they, if Beyonce and like Destiny's Child had said ten years ago, like
1: maybe, but thirteen and fourteen sign up for this thing. Most I totally the most would have done uh, it. the the demographic that's most using streaming services that they pay for, I would imagine.
0: Right. I mean, we're all look. We all looked at that press conference, though. I mean, that's half the battle. And 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 at the end of the day, I think music streaming still remains a kind of. Uh, niche industry. I mean, it is in a lot of ways what the music industry really needs to continue to make money. It is a way uh, to do so. Uh, But I think still a minority of music listeners are on one of these streaming sites. Um, And and I think, you know, I looked at that press conference and I understand the criticism that it's like it's all these like major celebrities. But at the same time, I'm of the belief that uh, and apologies again for the, like another tide pun, but you know, a high tide raises all boats, right? If the idea is that, you know, these are some extremely important artists, these are major artists of our time, they're part of this uh, platform that where you can get, you know, Aloe black songs, for instance. Um, I think that has value. I think there's value on having these really lo- like bright lights shine a light on the fact that it's it's kind of true. Artists aren't getting reimbursed the, the amount that they need to be reimbursed for their art. Um, in part, that's the, the problem with the digital world. I mean, you know, iTunes kind of I wouldn't say ruined everything, but iTunes set the standard by making a song worth 99 cents, and ever since then, we've been mm-hmm. the music industry's been grappling with the idea that that's now the 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 gold standard and how much we can charge for a song, right? And that's part of the problem, right?
1: I, I agree with you, but I think what they didn't get right in their message is that it was only the top echelon musicians saying, and and their message was musicians don't get paid enough money, and that that's a big disconnect. What they mean is people who are struggling musicians, and they are right, but that's not what it looks like, and that's mm-hmm. why I was more I was. Curious about title, and then I watched the press conference, and then I was totally—I was like, I don't want this. Okay. Like, <laughs> f this, basically.
2: <laughs> we just talked about a lot of different things uh, in terms of just like who's the demographic I think that might actually really want this. I think we need to scale back. Uh, if we each of us in this room maybe pe- peeled back 10 or 15 years of our lives and looked at when we were watching much music a lot. The thing, the reason that Much Music and MTV were so popular and now people are constantly whining about them is that back in in their golden days, they were the ways that young music fans got access to the artists that they loved so much. And you would stay glued to your TV hoping to see Music Video X or the premiere Music Video Y. And I think what Tidal is trying to do is really capture that sense of excitement. Like look at the fact that Rihanna and Beyonce both debuted brand new songs this past week immediately right on title is to say, this is this new access point. And I think you're going to see a lot of younger people say, whoa, streaming music is so cool. And they'll go to it the way that people went to, to MTV or much music. And in terms of just uh, the sort of major celebrities that are really surrounding uh, surrounding the service, uh, the whole point is that, you know, yes, smaller artists are supposed to be getting more money. We're not really sure how. People, some people are saying that there's going to be double the royalty payment uh, paid out to smaller artists, but that's not necessarily... Confirmed by Jay Z or any of uh, Title's owners, it just might be something more. We're not sure how that's going to work. But the point I think that these big celebrities are there is they're literally putting, you know, they've each put some fraction of their money into actually having an equity stake in this. So they're if the Title is like literally every single other on-demand streaming company that exists in the world today, each and every single one of these major celebrities is going to take like a loss, possibly in the first few quarters, an enormous financial loss uh, from this. I think it's their way of saying we believe that an artist owned property might mm-hmm. actually be the way going forward. And in a way, that is kind of a cool stance for smaller artists out there, though it is still clouded by the
0: fact that they haven't put any numbers on the table. Mm-hmm. I can also just poke uh, a quick hole in this autophilia claim. I think that there's like no stranger, uh, there's no stranger conceit that, that than that the fact that this music is gonna sound way better because the bit rates really high. Um, oh, I, I wrote about that months before Jay Z was even attached to that. It yeah. Just unless you own 400 five
2: hundred dollar headphones, yeah. like there's and like it's just not worth it. I mean, consider like the quality of a sound card in anyone's work computer, which is where most people are going to be listening to this yeah. above the age of 24. It's, it's
0: one of those things where people say like, oh, I want to recreate vinyl experience on my computer. That's that's basically impossible. Like, I mean, that's just how, that's the reason vinyl works is that you no longer have those boundaries that that limit the wave sound itself. This, I mean, we could get really in-depth about this, but the reality is like, this is one of those things where it's going to appeal to quote-unquote audiophiles, which I think is like the worst kind of person. <laughs> I almost feel like they're sticking with that argument just to keep roping in Jack White because he <laughs> is like
2: he seemed the most like he stuck out like a sore thumb at that press conference right. but he really is like he's the I would say arguably vinyl's global ambassador right yeah. now in terms of what he's doing with third man records yeah
0: all right well thanks for uh thanks for joining us Josh yeah, my pleasure more than 55 percent of Canadians use a smartphone more than 10 million of us check Facebook every day on our phones So obviously the digital world is a deeply embedded part of how we interact and how society works. So why do TV shows and movies so often fail to accurately represent how texting, emails, and social media work? Are weird bubbles and pop-ups really the best solution? Patrick Cederberg is the Toronto-based co-director of the short film NOAH, which tells the well-worn tale of how a relationship dissolves. Except this relationship falls apart on social media. (laughs) I don't see you.
1: Where are you? There you are. Oh, hey.
0: Can you hear me?
2: Yeah, yeah, what are you doing?
0: Oh, uh, I was just looking at these.
3: Yeah, you sent me this, like, two days ago.
0: I know, it's so funny, you should see it twice. It's a pretty novel idea that inspired one of TV's most-watched comedies, Modern Family, to have an episode in February that took place entirely on screens. Thanks for joining us on the phone, Patrick.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Um, So I guess the best place to start is to ask, uh, why did you make Noah?
3: It was our thesis project uh, at Ryerson University, myself and Walter Woodman, the co-director. We made it because we felt that... Growing up when we did, which was kind of on the line of, you know, having social media and not having social media, a lot of growing up took place interacting with friends over the computer. And we hadn't felt that anybody had done that honestly yet, or in a way that we could relate to that didn't feel like it was cheap and kind of cartoonish. So we wanted to make a short film It ended up being about 17 minutes. We wanted to make something that explored that in a way that we felt people could connect with. And it was also really cheap. (laughs) Compared compared to kids are spending thousands of dollars on their view systems and we were like, do something in our apartment with laptops and it cost us 300 bucks.
0: That's kind of amazing if only because like uh, like I was saying Modern Family then took in that's a that's a show with a large budget. Uh, oh, totally. And it's weird because it seems to it seems to us that it's really hard to do it. You know, we watch a lot of TV shows, we watch a lot of movies where, you know, stuff like that, you know, though it is the way the society interacts with each other, it's actually really hard for some for a lot of people to actually accurately display it on on screen. Right. Is that something you found yourself?
3: Um, I'm not sure if like you, you wouldn't be so difficult just given that it's such an integral part of the way everybody communicates now but I'm not sure if it's like a rights thing for a lot of people where it's like you know we can't show iOS like so we have to kind of have that just weird bubble that pops up that nobody ever sees in their phone with a text message Uh, or if it's just that people didn't really understand how to do it in a way that was compelling as well as being honest which is I think kind of the line we tried to draw in making sure that nothing felt phony Um, But also, you know, there was a lot of stuff that we cut out of the short film that didn't play well uh, to a viewer.
4: Well, I think what made your film so powerful to me, Patrick, because I also grew up at the same time where you would have fights on MSN Messenger or whatever with your (laughs) friends or like have, you know, engage in relationships and then break up all in the same place in the span of like 30 minutes on the Internet was that the way you portrayed it was it was just basically realism like you just showed us what the screen looks like what you're doing opening a million tabs at once whereas i think that a lot of bigger budget projects will try and and maybe it's just out of necessity for copyright reasons like you said they can't show ios but they'll have these bizarre sort of text bubbles appear on the screen like in a lot of romantic comedies you see that now and in Jason Reitman's um, men women and children that premiered at TIFF which was all about coming of age online and families connections through the internet um, there were lots of sort of weird little text bubbles that appeared and you know to me it's sort of maybe because I'm so immersed in that world it just seems really unnatural and it, it sort of feels like something that 10 or 20 years from now will look really corny and um, like a sort of a fad of the times when we're not sure what how we're supposed to portray technology. Like when you see on news broadcasts, um, news anchors saying like, what are they saying on Twitter? And, <laughs> and then, then they'll show like, John, like whatever, says <laughs> that Obama is a jerk and.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, like, is there a risk? Like, is there a risk uh, down the road or even right now to inauthentically displaying technology?
3: Um, in terms of risk, like, the audience is more savvy now than they've ever been. So you definitely run the risk of like instantly pulling somebody out of your content by essentially assuming they're stupid. And I feel like that's with a lot of audiences would look at something like really out there cartoonish social media stuff. It's like, well, I didn't try it. Or they think I'm just going to buy this. So there's a risk there in terms of uh, legality. We were a little bit worried about that going into it, how we said like, we don't want fake book. We don't want your tube. We want <laughs> to make sure everything was, genuine and straight but we also don't want to you know be paying however much money to make sure that we have the rights to do it so we kind of did it gorilla style and since the short film I mean, we've talked to facebook we've talked to google they reached out to us and basically said we love what you did um how could we help you do something more so overall like everybody's been very supportive and from what i understand the modern family episode as well like apple was just to to have it exactly as it would on a MacBook. So it seems like companies are more inclined to just kind of establish themselves as the norm. It's like using a telephone in a in a movie. Like, you can just pick up a phone and call it, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. The same way, like, you want to show them using Google? Sure, if anything, that's just that just embeds the idea of, like, Google is the place to be, the place to search whatever you want to search.
1: Yeah, so I... I I'm pleased to hear what you said about how the companies like Google and, and Apple were, were really into it. That's good news. And, you know, it makes me think when I see technology on on film or in television that it looks really co-opted and like they're trying to chase what the zeitgeist is and, and try to jam it in to make it like kind of look cool. And, you know, we've talked about how yours is so authentic looking, especially because like half of the, the your movie is about how this guy and this and this girl want to be represented and that's kind of what social media's function is like the way we should we would like to be perceived in the world and then the other half is him you know he's got porn two tabs open and he's trying to he's quickly trying to google who tom york is so he can impress this girl that he's talking about as if he always knew who radiohead was um so the authenticity is certainly there and um (laughs) because that i think is what everybody's kind of like even if they don't Say it out loud because that's what these little pocket computers um, do for us now. So do you want to make, are you going to make something else like that or had you, do you feel like you've kind of done it and you're kind of waiting for the next most real version of something to make that? Well,
3: we've thought around and we actually had a project uh, we were working on for a while that was kind of in the vein of uh, Noah, even like specifically format-wise. Um, and... People are doing it now, like it's becoming a thing. I don't know if you guys have seen the trailer for that new movie, Unfriended, Yeah. um, which apparently did really well at festivals. I don't know if I'm the demographic for it necessarily. It looks like it's kind of a teen slash, but it's still cool that people are doing that. And I think that us as a collective, myself, Walter and our other friend, Matt, uh, we do all our creative stuff together. The scenes that we touch on, like you were saying, about the, the duality, and like the crazy thing about the computer is that it is kind of about manufacturing an identity for yourself. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it behind the scenes, you get the most real, brutally honest version of yourself. Yeah. Which is kind of what we wanted to do with the film, was to see not only what they type, but what they delete. Right. So I think that that kind of idea of identity in the digital age is something that will ultimately ring re- in anything we do if it's about... Unless we do a period piece, but if we're doing anything about these days like that, that plays such a big part now. how people live their lives nowadays, it'd be difficult to ignore.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting that you brought up Unfriended because I think a lot of times people will, t- will say like, oh, you know, this talk of tech stuff is, is all very, you know, sterile or whatever. But in reality, it's actually kind of opening up new, like you were saying, like kind of
3: new worlds of art, new ways of telling Absolutely. stories, right? Yeah, totally. I think that the interesting thing about Unfriended is that it very much to me mirrors uh, what Blair Witch did mm-hmm. for found footage. Like he'll find the the, the the kind of the catalyst for big change, especially in the way video and film is portrayed it always comes from a horror i find like that's because you can get the most visceral emotions out of people through that so i'm very curious that about unfriended and how it does and seeing whether or not and the modern family episode as well Mm. if that ends up kind of spinning into a sort of established subgenre. and it would be cool even if we're just a little short film that people forget about because of modern family and unfriended to know that we were a little bit ahead of the curve on it you know
0: yeah, it's awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Patrick.
3: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: And then, suddenly, there were six. AMC's slow-burning series Mad Men is nearing its end after seven seasons. It's about a lot of things from the cutthroat world of advertising to alcoholism to America's crowning in the 1960s and 70s. But most of all, it's about Don Draper, the antihero at the show's core, a man who's fantastic at his job, but pretty bad at all the other stuff, including being a good father, a good husband, and someone who's sober most of the time. So let's start with Don. Uh, Julia, you watched uh, the first episode of the like second half season. What did you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't wait to see how it's going to end. I think a lot of people feel like that. I've been following along this whole time, sometimes against my better judgment. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, I have to say that I have a, a, kind of, a little bit of a bone to pick with this uh, this narrative of that Don is a bad guy, because I don't think he's, Don is a bad guy. He's considered manipulative and narcissistic and a controlling, hedonistic uh, philanderer. And I don't disagree. But, you know, so are the other guys. Roger and Pete certainly are. And Ken, Harry, and Lane have their moments, too. Um though of course we delve a little bit deeper into the layers of Don's personality because he's the star. But I don't think he's really that much worse than the other guys, certainly in terms of like a moral compass. Um I think that they're just as bad as each other and that's kind of the point. Like the the men of, of Mad Men live inside this this system that rewards that mentality of do whatever it takes to get what you want, the way you want it, despite on despite who you might have to step on to get it whatever means necessary to be the alpha dog. And I think that's why people bristle at Don specifically because he's the, like, the fullest version of uh, that kind of archetype. He's the poster boy of that apex of uh, masculinity that Mm -hmm. was revered in, like, the 60s and mid-century. And he's, you know, he he appears successful and rich and in control and suave and, like, matinee idol handsome. And uh, that's why we're kind of so torn on Don because he looks so cool while he's doing it. even though we we know he's kind of morally reprehensible and he had to do some pretty morally reprehensible things to get there. But I think that he's that continuously jerky because it's insinuated that it's okay and impressive even to kind of do what's necessary to get there. And they're, they're all like that.
4: I don't think that's necessarily a very good excuse for being a bad person, it's similar to the Kanye discussion we had last week. <laughs> but what kind of annoys me is I, I think you're right in the sense that no, he's not a mass murderer. He's not that bad. And yet John Hamm, who plays him, um, constantly talks about how it's so hard to play this complex and and morally, you know, empty character. And I just find it so obnoxious when actors talk about how hard it is to play bad characters because Mm -hmm. it's basically like saying, you know, it's so hard pretending that I have problems.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what acting is. Like, yeah. like, I don't know what he's complaining about.
0: Well, I mean, it's, I guess it's extra difficult insofar so far that ends up a lot of the problems that uh, Don Draper had. It's true. John himself had. He, you know, uh, this is an actor who came out recently as saying that he just got out of rehab.
4: Oh yeah, now I feel um, bad.
0: <laughs> but uh, it's too late now, Emma. Yeah, it's too late It's yeah. all on the record. But he
4: does have problems.
0: But there's something about Don, right? I mean, this is, uh, he is the anti-hero. There are a lot there is a lot that's unlikable, not just about him, I guess, but also really every character has its many they has its many flaws. Sure, um, but we still find ourselves uh, unable to look away. Um, uh, there's something we we care about him inexplicably, and I think in part that's the uh, the great thing about this show is that it's so slow moving. A lot of it, people would criti- like who criticize the show, say that it's not any good because nothing meaningfully happens, um, but. At the end of the day, the the reason a lot of people keep watching is because in the opening credits is uh, a character a, a, like, a you know, an illustration of someone who looks an awful lot like uh, like Don Draper falling from an apartment. And we kind of want to see, like, is that a literal fall? Like, is Don Draper going to well, we
1: die? We've kind of been watching him deteriorate one drink at a time throughout right. this entire series. I right. think Mad Men like
4: The Wire and maybe I haven't seen The West Wing, but I hear it's also an excellent show maybe those shows are, are appealing in the same way reading a good book is. Like you don't feel stupid after you watch them and you don't necessarily need all of these cliffhangers and, mm-hmm. um, you know, big events to happen to make it feel like something has actually
1: yeah well right. it's a it's a it's a character of study or it's a sorry it's a study of the characters of of character really right. that's really what but that's
0: what's interesting here. about mad men is that it is it's basically a, a story really about the progress of time you kind of see it in like you know Roger's porn mustaches that no one talks about because that's just how people had mustaches at the time you see it in like the way that they dressed uh Jamie Weinman wrote a story about how the clothes really are telling the story in mad Men because the story is that America's growing up and, and over the course of that we see Don Draper it's grow up too. about the
1: evolution too. of what's considered acceptable kind of right. what, that's what you're sort yeah. of pointing at but whether what's, in clothes or personality or whatever. Yeah.
0: But what I think is strange is that Mad Men is a, is a show that really has eschewed these major moments like there have been big moments like major stuff like actual stuff you can be like oh that guy died here and like you know stuff mm-hmm. that would happen in real life but also would happen in TV shows and dramas happen but we don't really talk about that when we talk about Mad Men we really care about so much about the character of Don that, that that's interesting and I feel like that is the, the the show's greatest success is that we care so much about a person who meaningfully has not changed dramatically in his life, and yet we still want to see him at the end of this either dire escape, and I, and I think that's that says a lot about the age of the antihero we're in, that's in TV also right now.
1: Just the power of cool. He's a really right. cool guy. Mm-hmm. I think actually the reason why it's like that is because it's more it's rooted in reality. Like you talk about the antihero, and sometimes in television, the another other versions of of antiheroes that come up are like Tony Soprano or or um, Nucky from uh, Boardwalk Empire. Mm-hmm. But those guys are like mob boss fantasies, and Don Draper is a person who those kinds of people were truly real in the 60s and he was successful in a legit way yeah. in the way that Tony Soprano and Nucky were they did illegal things or were these you know what I mean well like but he, Don
0: also like is a war like escaped the war yeah. by taking on someone's but name beat fraud he the system
1: overall like he right. is you know virtually what he would now be a ceo if he existed today sure. and he gets all these beautiful women he marries some of them he can have affairs he really gets away with basically everything yeah. but part i mean that's kind of what the show's about is, is it shows that he gets away with things on the surface or in in life but inside he's crumbling and because that's what happens when you are to some degree immoral it erodes your spirit.
0: I just uh, when I when I talked about the anti-heroes thing I just wanted to to note that I I really feel like we're kind of nearing the end of it. You know, there was all this stuff with Walter White from Breaking Bad, here we have Don again and and the characters you just mentioned and and certainly HBO and AMC have been at the forefront of this, the the valor of the of the anti-hero, usually a man. Um, I think people, there's a real chance that this could be one of the last shows that really has a protagonist that's so clearly anti-heroic. Uh, I think the the, the archetype is, is really getting to the point where it's hard for me to see myself caring for another character that's a lot like Don or a lot like Walter White, someone who is so deeply flawed that somehow so unlikable and I still have to like it. I think there is going to come a point where people don't want to watch that anymore. Well, you
1: remember when Colin Horgan was here a couple episodes ago, he was talking about girls. We talked about Lena Dunham's character in Girls as being that kind of unlikable. I mean, I know she's not exactly like Don Draper, of course, but that she is, in her own way, an antihero. And that seems quite successful. So maybe it's just, I mean, who can, you know, you can't predict the future, of course, but I, I do take your point that this is kind of um, a role that has been, it's its beating a dead horse mm-hmm. at this point, yeah. that kind of personality.
0: Mad Men, it's a show about clothes. It's impacted the way that men drink today. And tie pins? Tie pins, and uh, maybe it will end the antihero. Who knows? <laughs> Well, uh, you can read what McLean's Mad Men panel says every Monday after each episode. Uh, Jamie Wyman, Colin Horgan, Sonia Bell, and I are recapping each episode and, in true Mad Men fan fashion, we'll overthink one particular moment of the show. You can read it every Monday at mcleans.ca. Well, that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at mcleans.ca and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and BeyondPod. Leave us a review on iTunes or drop us a comment on the site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast on The Hill. You can also hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work, and McLean's voices. Both are on iTunes and Stitcher. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at EmmaRoseTitle. You can follow Julia at JuliaDelJ, and me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.